All right, good morning, church. Psalm 3 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our series, walking through psalm after psalm and learning how to bring our emotions to God. All right, Psalm 3, let's get to work. God's word says this. So it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And he writes, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me, many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, O Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. So it's been said that you don't know a person deeply unless you know four things about them, what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, what makes them angry, and what makes them afraid. And the beautiful thing about the book of Psalms is we get to know the psalmist because we hear their joys and we hear them crying and we hear them angry and we hear their fears coming through, which is what makes the book of Psalms such a real book. I mean, it's got raw energy in it and feeling and emotion right packed into it. So what we said at the very beginning of this series is that the Psalms are a gift from God to us. Uh, He's giving us a language for every season of the soul. Right, so if God has given us in the Psalms a language for every season of the soul, what do you say to God when you're afraid? When that's the season you're in. When, what do you say to God when your back is up against the wall? And we get to eavesdrop on King David and his back is up against the wall and we get to listen and imitate his faith in the midst of his fear. So there's a kind of progression in our passage. If you're taking notes, we're gonna just pick up on four words that move us through our passage. It begins with this one, facts. Facts. So look with me again at verse one. Lord, how my foes increase. Those are the facts. That's the reality on the ground. Foes are multiplying, right? There, there are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. So what do we see there? Right in the very first couple of verses, we see that he's telling God what it is. He's telling, he's telling it like it is. He's reporting to God the situation on the ground of his experience and in his life. So what do we say to God? If we're following the example of David, just, let's just stop here for a second and apply this to our own lives. If we're following David's example in the first two verses, what do we do? If you're taking notes, we name our fears. We name our fears. That's what David's doing right out of the gate. He's naming his fears. So in the original Hebrew there's a root word, rob, R-A-B, that occurs three times in the first two verses. It occurs in different forms. Two times it's an adjective and one time it's a verb. So rabu and rabim and rabim, right? So it basically, it's just a word that means many. It's translated into English, many, right? So in Hebrew, if you repeat something twice, you're basically underlining it. That's how they would underscore something. So for example, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wouldn't have been less true for him to just say truly once, 
right? If he would have just said, truly I say to you, well, that's perfectly true. But if he says, truly, truly, that means it's true and it's important. It's true and it's extremely important. So I'm gonna say truly twice, right? So that you don't miss what I'm saying. So in, in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew culture, they would use the word twice or repeat it twice to add emphasis. And on rare occasions, they would amplify it by three. So for example, in a classic moment in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah looks up and he has a revelation of the glory and majesty of God and he sees God high and lifted up and exalted and the train of his robe is filling the temple and he is undone and he's a man of unclean lips, right? So, and then he looks into the heavens, into the skies above him and he sees these angels singing in sort of antiphonal song back and forth to one another and what are they singing? Not just holy is the Lord, not just holy, holy is the Lord, but the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy. It is holy to an exponent of infinity. It is holy multiplied by uh, infinity, right? It is holiness beyond what, what the powers of language can convey. It is ineffable is the word that we use in English for something that is so holy that we can't convey it in human language. That's holiness, the thrice holy God whose holiness is beyond description. So David is not, just so, uh, just to be clear, he's not singing in verse one, holy, holy, holy in the exaltation of God. What he is singing is many, many, many are my foes. So we are feeling that he is surrounded by foes to an exponent of infinity. He is utterly incapable. He is utterly helpless. He is back against the wall. So you see that word, that root word, Hebrew word rob, it occurs. Many, my foes are increasing. That's the word rabu. It means menifying, manifying. If we had an English word that means manifying, it's the word increasing, right? But it's that word. Many, Rabim, are attacking me. Many, Rabim, are saying of my soul, there's no help for him in God. So the thrice many is the situation he's up against in verse one and two. You talk about naming your fears. You look at the words in italics in your Bible because those are part of the inspired word of God. That's not added by some editor. Those are inspired words, and it says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. So if you're not familiar with the story, you go back later on, because I'm not gonna read it right now, but go back later on and read 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, where, where King David is tied up with a lot of government affairs are going on, and he's just very, very busy <clears throat> at this time. And there's some complaints that are going on in the kingdom and people can't get access to King David the way that they used to. And so they would show up at the king's gate to file a complaint. And guess who was waiting there? The king's son, Absalom, to start a coup. And he's finding all these malcontents and he's saying, hey, look, you're not gonna get in there. There's no way, come talk to me. I'm the king's son, talk to me. And he goes over here and he has all these conversations and he has so, so many multiplied conversations of people who are complaining about things going on in the kingdom that he ends up forming a, a huge throng, massive crowds of people who say Absalom needs to be the king, we need to install him by force. And so that's exactly what happens and it takes David by surprise. And if you go back, I'll, I will read this to you, it's gonna be on the screen. An informant comes to King David and tells him the situation, and here's how it reads. An informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. 
Leave quickly or he will overtake us, heap disaster on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. I mean, this is David's own son. It had to be surreal for him to say, we gotta run and we gotta run now because my son is coming and he will strike this city down with the edge of the sword. He just killed his brother Amnon like a chapter ago. He is a bloodthirsty man who wants more power and we gotta get out of here if we're gonna save our lives. And, and many scholars believe that on the morning of his first morning of exile, the morning after David fled Jerusalem, he wrote Psalm 3. Many, many, many are my foes. Back is against the wall, outside the palace, outside of Jerusalem, on the run from my own boy. This is his attacker, right? So Christian, when you pray, name your fears. We name our fears. Second, we tell God what our fears are saying. We tell God what our fears are saying. You, you notice he says, many say about me, and I quote, <laughs> there is no help for him in God. You know, it's one thing to be surrounded by enemies. It's, it's another thing to be taunted by enemies, and it's a whole other thing <laughs> to start believing them. To start coming to the conclusion you know, I think they're right. I think God has left the building. I think God has left the premises. I think I have fallen out of favor. I don't know how it happened, but the ball of God's favor is now bouncing decidedly away from my life. He's not with me anymore, right? right. So my back is up against the wall and I've been in situations, I've been in situations like this before as the king, right? But now my back is up against the wall and they're telling me God won't come. God will not help me, right? Some of the biggest turning points in the Bible happen when God's people quote their enemies in prayer. This is a pivot point. It's like David is saying, here's what they're saying. Are you going to let them get away with this? They're saying you're the kind of God who won't help me. You're the kind of God who leaves your people high and dry. God, that's what they're saying about you. Are you going to let this stand? It's a turning point. And this, is, this happens in a number of other places in the Psalms. Here's just a, a quick sampling. Psalm 74, verse seven and eight. Lord, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, quote, we will utterly subdue them. They're quoting their enemies in the presence of their God. Psalm 137, verse seven. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. They said, quote, destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations. And here, David says, do you hear what these enemies are saying about you? They say that you're the kind of God who leaves your people and doesn't help them. You think about how David's experience in Psalm 3 um, not only relates to our personal lives, but it foreshadows David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the son of David and the Messiah. So a thousand years before Christmas morning, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, here we have in Psalm 3, Israel's king is exiled. Israel's king is exiled from the very city over which he ruled, right? So the proper king is being evicted and they chose Absalom in the place of their proper king, right? It's no wonder that Jesus so often in his life prays what? The Psalms, even in his agony, even in his passion, in his death, what text 
does he reach for? He reaches for the Psalms. He says, that's my language. He is the, the quintessential psalmist, the psalmist par excellence. It's no, no wonder that Jesus so often praised the Psalms because he lived Psalm 3. How many are my foes? Many attack me, many say of me, there's no help for me in God as he's driven in exile outside the same city, outside the city of Jerusalem, almost exactly reenacting what happened a thousand years earlier with King David himself. They, they see what Jesus' enemies, they see him hanging on the cross and what do they say? Why won't your God come now? Why can't you come down from the cross? If God is with you, why aren't you ruling in Jerusalem right now? Why are you exiled outside the gates of the city, hanging in shame, right? Well, we know on this side of the cross as Christians, we know why Jesus was driven out of the city. He was driven out of the city so that he might bring his people near, so that he might bring those who are afar off near to God, into the presence of God. Friends, we know on this side of the cross the glory of new covenant Christian faith. We don't need a holy city to know the nearness of God. We don't need happy circumstances to know the nearness of God. We can know God's nearness in the presence of our enemies. While we are singing, many, many, many are my foes, we can know the nearness of God. Why? Because the son of David came, he stood in our place, he died on the cross, his head hung in shame so that he might be my glory and the lifter of my head. Christians sing this glorious truth today with such added meaning. What did Paul say? God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, every Sunday, Brook Hills, we are glorying in Christ. We are boasting in the cross in the presence of our enemies. We are boasting over sin and death and shame and hell and Satan, right? With the church in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? It was holy smack talk, gospel-infused smack talk in the presence of their enemies. So you move from facts to faith. Faith. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. You know, I love those first two words because the, all the best stories in the Bible begin with but God, right? You come over into the New Testament and you read these precious words in Ephesians chapter two. Here's the story we were living in and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the, in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, that is sentenced to wrath, as the others were also, but... God, those two words have launched a thousand hymns over the last couple thousand years. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by 
grace. That's good news, right? That's gospel news. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul taught the church to sing, but God, when we come together in the assembly of the saints. And 1,000 years before that, so 3,000 years ago, King David taught the church to sing, but you in the presence of our enemies. He says, many, many, many are those who attack me. Many, many, many are my enemies, but you, O Lord, are a shield. That's, now faith's talking, right? Now he's not just listening to the words of his enemies. Now he's not just listening to his soul say maybe they're right. He stopped listening and now he's talking. Now he's preaching. He's preaching the gospel, Old Testament style, to his own soul. And what does it basically say? It says this, our fears are no match for our help. Our fears are no match for our help. Look, faith... I hope we saw this just in the first two verses, even though we were there for only briefly. Our, our faith doesn't deny our fears, it resizes them. It resizes them in comparison to the God who is for us. So again, the most frequent command in the Bible, we said this a couple weeks ago, most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. It is do not fear, right? So very often though, when God says do not be afraid, his people have very good reasons to be afraid. <laughs> Hence the need for him to say do not be afraid. They've got great reasons, a, uh, a, long, a laundry list of reasons to be afraid. So when God says do not fear, he doesn't just say don't fear because I told you so, just period, don't fear, because I said not to, right? So often when God says do not fear, he attaches, he staples his resume. He says don't, do not fear because let me tell you a little bit about who I am. In Isaiah, for example, he asks these rhetorical questions to his fear-ridden people. And he says, have you not known? Have you not read this, my resume? Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. This is God stapling his resume and saying, don't fear because I'm in charge of everything. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. I can turn it wherever I want to. The nations are in the hand of the Lord. I know the end from the beginning. I am sovereign over all things. No one can stay my hand and nobody can say to me, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? I am in charge. What God says to his people, you wanna fear something? Fear me. <laughs> Jesus said that, right? You wanna fear something? Fear God. Not the ones who were running their mouths. Your fears, fear me. God says that repeatedly. <laughs> your fears, if they're smart, if they're wise, your fears, fear me. I have a pastor friend named John O. I just call him John O. His last name's Anwachekwa, but nobody can say that. So we all just call him John O. And he's a, a pastor in Atlanta. I love how he says it. He says, God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. <laughs> Let me say that again. God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. Problem. That's exactly what David is riffing on here in Psalm 3. He starts remembering truths about God, right? He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me, not just in front of me. You're a shield that covers everything. You, you wrap all the way around me. Many, many, many are my foes, but they're no match for my shield. What is David doing when he says, you are a shield? He's remembering scripture. 
He's remembering where this story began and where he is in the unfolding story of God and his people. Where does the story go back to? It goes back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. And you move forward from Genesis chapter 12 where God makes a promise to Abraham and to all his offspring of which David is a part. And what did God say to the patriarch Abram when he shows up in Genesis 15? It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. What are the following words? I am your shield. David says, wait, I remember where this all started. God said, don't be afraid because I'm your shield. And he said it to Abram and the God of Abraham is my God. And so Abraham's shield is my shield. And then he says, you see those words, my glory and the lifter of my head, my, my glory, right? Where, if David's glory is bound to the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, where's his glory now? Because now he's exiled. He's not sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, right? He's somewhere else running for his life. And David says, you're my glory. You are my glory. You are the one who lifts my head. David comes to a point of saying, the honor of God weighs more than a whole kingdom. Let me ask you this question. Does the commendation of God outweigh the approval of your friends? Does the commendation of God outweigh the applause of this world? Your life of obedience to God's word is gonna tell the story of where you locate ultimate glory. What glory matters most? What voice, what honor, what commendation matters most? Whose honor moves the needle in your life? David says, you are my glory. You are the lifter. I love that language, the lifter of my head. Verse three is such a beautiful verse for those who feel that their only future for them is just more and more disgrace. People who, who feel wrapped in shame, who feel like everywhere they walk, you can see it. You can see it, it's, it sticks to me. And I feel like everybody sees my shame, what I did or what was done to me, that there's no restoration of dignity for me, that there, there, there's no glory, there's no story after the story of shame. And, and David is saying, oh no, there, there is a story. There is a dignity that is bestowed by God himself our glory. Jesus, what does he do? He lifts the, the very heads of those most covered in shame in the gospels. And he lifts their heads, the heads of people bowed down in shame, right? What does Christian baptism announce for believers? It announces that you got a new identity. You got yourself a new name. You're baptized into the name of the Father. It's a naming ceremony. Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're not what you were yesterday. You got a new identity. You have a new name. Your glory, your shame is gone. You have a new identity. Your glory is not tethered to your performance. It's not tethered to your influence in the city, to the work that you do, to your wealth, to your power, to your attractiveness. Your glory is not bound to an unblemished record of sexual purity. The gospel's better than that. It's so much better than that. He bore our shame, he forgives our sin. I love what, what Martin Luther said, a 16th century reformer. 
And he said, Christians are not loved because they're beautiful. Christians are beautiful because they're loved. It is the love of God that beautifies the Christian, that washes through the whole of the Christian. It's the great Psalms scholar of the early 1800s, William Plumer, who said this, when the Lord thus lifts up the head, who can bow it down? Mm. When God was the only defense that David had, David's realizing here in Psalm three, God is the only defense that David needs. So we move from facts to faith to acts. I lie down and sleep. So there's a theology of sleep in the Bible. There's a theology of sleep in the Psalms. For example, later in Psalm 127, uh, scripture says, you know, why do you eat the bread of anxious toil? You're staying up late at night. You're up early in the morning as if it all depends on you. He says he gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep is a gift from a sovereign God to a non-sovereign believer. <laughs> it's the blessing of rest. It's the blessing of Sabbath, right? Many scholars call this Psalm, Psalm 3, a morning Psalm because the second part of verse five, he's waking up. He's waking up with the morning, and then, so you got the morning psalm in, in Psalm 3, and you have, look at Psalm 4, and it might say above Psalm 4, a night prayer. So you have a morning psalm and an evening psalm back to back, because at the end of chapter 4, if you just want to flip there and look at the last verse, it says he's not waking up, he's going to bed, right? Verse 8, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in Safety, we've got right here in these two chapters a psalm that wakes us up in the morning and says you can trust God and a psalm that says you can go to sleep and you can trust God. The recognition that God is our shield invites us to rest. It invites us to rest. Look, choosing to rest is an act of faith. Choosing to Sabbath is an actual act of faith. Choosing to go to actual bed <laughs> is an act of faith, right? It, what, what are you saying in those moments? You're saying, God, you can run the universe for a while, you, right? And it's a microcosm of the fact that you can run the universe even when I'm awake, I'm not running the universe, right? right? So I'm clear on things. It's not like, you know, may, maybe we need that nudge in the morning when we wake up in the morning where God sort of nudges us and says, hey, I managed okay last night. You know, while you were out cold, I actually managed <laughs> to hold the planets in their orbits, right? Do you have a well-formed theology, not only of kingdom activity, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but of Sabbath rest, fueled by the promise of God? A Sabbath rest that, that, that says, you know, God, that allows us to say, you and me, to say, God, you can get, you can get through to my kids without me constantly nagging them about this. That says, God, if I have to come off the field of mission or if I have to come off the field of ministry, it's not gonna mean we lose the ball game. It takes faith to go to sleep when your enemies are outside, right? That's, that's what's happening in Psalm 3. He's going to sleep and his enemies are just outside. Actually, he's just woken up and his enemies are just standing right there. Right, that's the language. You see it? I wake again. So, good morning. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Don't miss it. The psalmist wakes up in Psalm 3 and the enemies are outside the window. The enemies are knocking on the door, thousands of them. 
Right, what's the parallel for us? The cancer is still wreaking havoc. The friends are still isolating you. The addiction is still screaming, you need me in your life and you need me today, right? And David, he says, the enemies are still outside. And he says, but I will not be afraid of thousands of enemies who are surrounding me on all sides. I will not be afraid because I have this shield, this shield around me, right? This is David's version of do not worry about tomorrow for sufficient for the day is its own trouble, right? So we can do this, right? We can try to borrow from the future. We can, we can extrapolate based on today, Thursday is gonna be awful, right? Well, here's the thing. You can't get grace for Thursday until you're in Thursday because Thursday's troubles come with Thursday's new morning mercies and you don't get Thursday's new morning mercies on Tuesday. They come on Thursday. So that's why Jesus says, wait till Thursday. You'll get mercies on Thursdays that will help you handle Thursday. Today, you got enough going on. Lean into today's grace. Lean into today's mercies. So facts, faith, acts, and finally, hopes. Hopes. Rise up, Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Rise up, O Lord. It was a, it was a military, it was military language. It was, the, it was the Old Testament Braveheart speech. It was, we're going out to battle. Lord, go with us. Rise up, O Lord. Even, at, even late into the 16th century, the church would use this language. Even a, a papal edict was written about Martin Luther. That's a exerge domine. You know, rise up, O Lord. There's a, there's a wild boar running loose in your vineyard, and that wild boar's name was Martin Luther, right? So this was a kind of, it was a battle cry. There, there is trouble afoot, and we need God to rise up, right? This word, you think about it, we've come full circle here at the end. Because that word arise at the end of this psalm balances the lament in verse one. Many were rising up and saying of my soul, he has no help. And here David at the end says, God, would you arise? My enemies are rising up. God, arise. The Lord conquers the enemies we could never conquer. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked, which seems super dark, right? It's like, surely we're not supposed to pray, you know, you know God punched that guy in the face, right? That's, it, it's like, is that what, what David is saying here? Is that a, um, is, does this vindicate Christian pettiness, <laughs> right? So where, where you sort of direct God's thunderbolts in the direction of your haters or the people who look down on you or whatever, you know, is, is that what this psalm is, is doing? No, uh, David is not being petty. This is David, uh, the king of Israel. This is David, he's pointing to something else. This is David knowing where God's program of world history is headed, namely, verse eight, salvation and blessing for your people, eternal benediction over your people. David is basically saying here at the end, Lord, don't let anything stand in the way of your program for world history, the way of your glory shining through your people in the world, right? There's a, a statement that has gained traction in in really for decades, and it goes something like, this is the way I heard it growing up, is we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. That's a Christian statement of hope, right? 
you look here at the end of Psalm 3 and you ask the question, what is God doing in the world? And the answer is, he is saving. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's his business. That, that's his MO. That's what God is doing. Salvation, and here's, here's how that registers and should register in my life as a believer, in your life as a follower of Jesus, is salvation belongs to God today. Salvation belongs to God tomorrow. He's a God who saves. He can do this. He loves doing this, right? We have this confidence based on God's own promise that his blessing will be upon his people. Look, let's be clear. Um, as if this needs saying, we don't live in heaven, right? We, we live on earth. We live in a fallen world. And the reality is, God's sovereign will, this is clear in scripture and it's clear in our experience, God's sovereign will is not to give you and me an uncomplicated and easy life. What is God doing then? He is forging a trust in him that will be vindicated a thousand times over when you see him face to face. That's him saving you, saving me, deepening our trust in him because the bigger he gets in our eyes, the more we're gonna wanna trust him. That's what this psalm is about, right? How does this hope speak to us when we're afraid? A line from Matthew Henry, uh, the preacher from a couple centuries ago, and here's how he described the life of David in the psalms. As he said, he wept and prayed, he wept and sung, he wept and believed, and he wept and slept. <laughs> He's resting in God in the midst of his fears, in the midst of his tears. You know, believers in the 16th century, they knew what it was like to wake up and face their fears, surrounding them on every side. They, they, they went to Psalms like Psalm 3 and other places because they needed to know what can we say in the presence of our foes? What can we say when our backs are up against the wall? And Martin Luther penned the battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, to allow God's people to sing themselves firm into the promises of God. And here's what one of the verses said. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That, friends, is the 16th century's way of saying what my pastor friend in Atlanta says, which is God is your greatest problem's greatest problem. So what's that mean? It means this week, get some sleep. 